All right. Good morning, everybody. Nikki Burnett here, Taste Life Nutrition Radio, streaming live on, sorry, KUHSDenver.com, uh, where uh, today I'm all alone, which is fun for me because then I get to nerd out on the fun things that I like to nerd out on. So I'm hoping you'll enjoy nerding out with me a little bit. And if you are on Facebook or Instagram, then feel free to ask me some questions and we'll see if we can't have a little fun interaction. Um, not that I know everything, but I know some stuff, so we love to chat about it. Anyway, uh, today, man, one of my favorite topics is learning about genetics, um, or learning and talking about genetics, and the implication of our epigenetic makeup on our health today, on our health in the future, of course on the health of generations to come. And so there's so much that we're learning. This, this is a, a, a science that's, that's still in its infancy and we're still figuring it out and having fun with it. But man, the tools that we have to truly individualize our, uh, our nutrition, our lifestyle, our workouts, um, even the, the prescriptions we might have to take, it's fascinating. It's fascinating and it's beautiful. It's really, really exciting. Um, and you know, it also can be, you know, there are, uh, there are points where it can be abused, but that's like everything. So, um, being educated about it and enjoying it for what it is and digging into it and, um, really and digging into it, but digging into you, right? It's, this is digging into me and I brought my own, uh, report here. I have several reports actually, but, um, really really learning about what I need, what my body needs, what, what, you know, physically makes me tick and keeps me going. And it's, it's really amazing. And it really helps me to, um, personalize specific protocols for clients. And that's, uh, it's phenomenal. So, uh, as always though, we start the show with gratitude. Uh, gratitude can change the world. I truly believe that. Um, and you know, it's when we feel good, we it's it's easier to get into gratitude. And I mean, it's true. And when we don't feel well, then you know, we still need to have the gratitude, need to be grateful for what what we have. But you know, it's why I do what I do every day is to help people feel well and to optimize and to to you know live life to the fullest to the best of our ability and uh you know it, the gratitude is a huge piece of that feeling well is a huge piece of that and, and so many things you know we talk about um you know the show is physical mental and emotional yes or health is phys physical mental and emotional but it's also spiritual and financial and relational and it's important to have uh, these things sort of all wrapped up in one and they are all connected as much as possible um you know and it's always a practice nobody's perfect and we're always working on all of these things but uh you know it's it's always good it's fun to to con continue to learn how to live bigger and better um and that's that's my ultimate goal so um for me today you know you know very simply you know last week i talked about um my husband and i celebrating our 18th wedding anniversary super cool stuff um only because it's you know it doesn't feel like it's been 18 years uh it really doesn't and it's been 21 together and you know i i, I feel so blessed to 
to feel like we're just getting started and we have so much more to do you know with each other with our businesses we're both entrepreneurs and uh, it's a it's a really fun fun and curious and exciting feeling to you know look to the future what's to come what are the big things that we're going to be doing you know the big things that we're working for right now so I'm really really grateful for that you know I'm grateful for my three crazy th crazy dogs um, these girls are, are you know my heart <laughs> and they're so much fun um, you know our our animals should be part of the family and I think for most of us they are and I think for some of us they aren't and that's the intent and if they're not maybe reconsider and find somebody who who will have them as a part of their family but um, I haven't talked about this in a long time and it's totally off topic except for the fact that we're looking we're talking about food and genetics today and so if we're looking at our animals and what they're supposed to eat and what is helping them to live their own best life it's not kibble right if you're feeding your dog and this isn't you know, I'm not trying to condemn anyone because if you don't know, you don't know. But um, I didn't know for a long time. Now I do. Uh, but if you're feeding your animals, you know, cats, dogs, it, you know, foods that, that aren't normal and natural to them, it's problematic. It will shorten their life. Just like if I'm eating McDonald's every day, it's going to shorten my life. And this is what we're doing to our animals. Um, you know, so kibble is the, the round or whatever, you know, shaped food that comes in a bag, it's terribly, terribly toxic. Um, and what what we're seeing is animals who have the potential of living to, you know, 25, 35 years old. And when, you know, we, we're considering our animals at this point at 10 being senior, that's a problem. That goes back to epigenetics. What are we doing where every every generation and their generations are much shorter than ours are but every generation seems to be getting shorter and shorter and shorter you know we've got you know I, somebody said to me the other day my dog's seven oh he's getting old I'm like no no it's not supposed to be that way so this talk today the show is not on you know dog nutrition but I think that it's important to to put it out there because you know, we want, them, we want them around. I mean, it breaks our hearts when they leave us, and especially when they leave us early. And we have so much control over the health of their life, the health of our life, as well as the health of generations, which is so much of what I want to talk about today. But um, the interesting thing is, you know, when I put in the title for the show today, it's, you know, what's the perfect diet? I mean, seriously. There is no perfect diet, <laughs> there's not. But, um, and it, it makes it hard because it would be, it would make my job really, really easy if I could just tell everybody come, who comes to me to eat um, a paleo diet or to eat a carnivore diet or to go keto or just to do a whole 30 and you'll be great, right? But there are all of these intricacies to diets, but the intricacies are for us. We have, I mean, everything about us is different from every person in the world, right? Our genetic makeup is different. Our epigenetic makeup or our gene expression is different. Um, the way that we view the world is different. The way that we think about things is different. The way that we internalize 
relationships and trauma and, and, and things that happen in life is different. All of these things affect our body. It affects our digestion. It affects the way that our brains function and the, affects the way that our, our gut functions and our heart and everything, right? Everything is different. And so I can't tell you. So even as simple as somebody saying, how much protein should I eat? Great question. Let's find out, right? And so the best way to, to, to dig into what it is that your body needs specifically is to do genetic testing. Um, we can call it genetic testing, we can call it epigenetic testing, but we all have these variants that make us unique. And variants are, let me do, I'll, I'll, I'll just give a little backup. If you've heard me talk before, you've heard this, but if you haven't, then I think it's important. So. We all know what genetics are, right? It's basically who, our, who we are. It's our height, which can change as we age, but you know, it's our bones that make that happen. But anyway, it's these things, you know, it's the shape of our hands, you know, these things that don't typically change. This is our genetic makeup. Epigenetics is, uh, it's, it's the study of genetic expression. And so what that means is we have locations on top of our genes that that are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. You can call them SNPs, you can call them variants, but all of these things are, are have control, or these, I'm sorry, these locations have control over genetic expression. The beautiful thing about epigenetics is it is controlled by lifestyle. Everything that we do every single day is turning on and off these SNPs or these variants. Right, so the food we eat, good or bad, the rest that we get, good or bad, the relationships we're in, the thoughts that we have, the traumas that we experience, the exercise or the movement that we're getting, too much or too little, all of these things play a role in genetic expression, including disease. So we can look at, um, at, the, at these epigenetic reports and we can see the propensity for um, for autoimmune conditions, or even specifically for celiac disease. I don't think, I don't, as far as I know, because I'm, I'm not an expert, I know enough to talk about it, but as far as I know, you know, can, are there certain variants that are specific to certain autoimmune conditions? What I see at this point is celiac, we can kind of see, um, but then we have, we have SNPs that show propensity toward autoimmune conditions in general. Um, and so I think that um, these, you know, knowing when we have this, we can look at our family, we can look at our history. My mom had all kinds of autoimmune conditions. Um, and, you know, we have cardiovascular, you know, conditions and health, and, and, and I'm sorry, issues in our family, strokes, um, uh, heart attacks. We have, we've got a little bit of cancer, I believe, uh, diabetes, all of these things. The thing to make sure that you all understand though, because what I hear in practice all the time, all the time, is when, when someone comes to me, they blame their, what they're suffering with or struggling with on family, on bad luck, on genetics, when it's, it's epigenetic, which means we have control over it. True genetic conditions, and I want to make sure that we understand the difference there. They're similar but, but different. True genetic conditions are conditions that um, 
Down syndrome, right? That's a true con genetic condition. Most everything else is epigenetic. So our, our like I was saying, our cardiovascular diseases, our, you know, uh, if we're dealing with um, diabetes, different types of autoimmune conditions, whatever the case may be, these really are all considered lifestyle because we have the control over what we're putting into our mouth. We have the control over you know, what the, the things that we say. We don't always have control over the toxins in the environment, right? But we have control over what's in our home environment. We don't always have control over the traumas that we, that we struggle with in our lives, and, but we do have control over how we manage them, whether that's getting help, whether that's talking with someone, whether it's doing emotional freedom techniques, right? All of these different things that can help us to, to manage the stuff that we deal with in life. And so I want to talk a little bit about the different diets. Um, and then I you know, want to incorporate in there the genetic factors in a sense to help understand why some of these are good, why maybe they're not good, why they're good for some people and they're not good for everyone. Um, and I'm gonna talk about some that are a little maybe sort of crazy uh, and I also want to make sure that you remember that I say that, um, that I hate the word diet. This is really all about lifestyle, but we have diets that in my mind, they're therapeutic, right? They have their place. Um, and so let's, let's talk about those a little bit because I want to, I think it's, again, I think it's important to make sure that as you're considering what you might want to do or what you might want to try, that you want to, if you have the ability ability to do some genetic testing, understand that. And instead of just trying everything in the world and get, getting really frustrated by it, you have a better understanding of what your body needs. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about me because <laughs> I am, well, I'm an experimenter and I've, I've pretty much always experimented on my own body, not in a bad way, but I want to understand how my body's going to respond two different things, and I also want to make sure that I've done the things that I'm telling my clients to do. And I think it's important to have an understanding, now my body is probably gonna react differently than their body is, but I still wanna have an understanding and have gone through it so then I can teach it and I can guide and I can do all of the things. So I've gone through my own process over however many years now of doing things like the full-on fasting, Right, um, I think the longest I fasted is 36 hours. We did that fairly regularly for a while. The intermittent fasting, I've done keto, I've done carb cycling, I've done macros, I've done paleo, which is kind of where I sit for the most part. Um, and then there's carnivore and meat-based and Mediterranean, there's Whole30, there's low FODMAP, there's GAPS diet, there's elemental diet, there's vegan, vegan and vegetarian. Um, and there are probably more. So um, I want to just give a little bit of inf information on all, all of these because, because we're so confused, right? We're so confused on what's right for me. And this isn't going to tell you what's right for you, but it's going to hopefully going to give you a little bit of insight as to what it is that can help you uh, in whatever it is you're dealing with. So is this going to be something that's a short-term therapeutic diet? It's typically what I use these for. Um, and there, there are reasons for that. But say we start with intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, I think, is a very normal, natural approach to a good, healthy lifestyle. I think it can be a lifestyle. 
Um, intermittent fasting is typically you, you choose, if you're just starting out, you can do 12 hours of eating and 12 hours fasting. There are people who go to, which is more normal, 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating. Some people will even go um, 20 hours of fasting and four hours of eating. I think it depends on the, no, I know it depends on the person. And I also wanna throw in that men do really well with intermittent fasting. Women, not so much. So it's not only genetics, but I think, but I know hormones play a role in it. Um, you know, so many things play, so many, there are lots of factors in whether these things work for us or not. Women though, we tend to have more thyroid issues than men do. Why? I don't know, it's hormonal. You know, our, we have hormones that are, you know, very, excuse me, cyclical um, and can be very random and men can too, but really for us, I mean, literally our hormones are changing day to day, week to week and month to month. And so I think that that plays a big role in how well we do with intermittent, fast, intermittent fasting. It also plays a role in how intermittent fasting can affect our thyroid. And what the data shows is for women, it can be harder on our thyroid if we're doing intermittent fasting. So if, if someone wants to do intermittent fasting, they're doing well with it and they like it and they feel good, which happens a lot, then my suggestion is let's use intermittent fasting as a tool periodically. So say you do five days of intermittent fasting and you use the weekends to eat normally. Have some breakfast, right, if you're hungry. I also don't want you to eat if you're not hungry, but if you're never not hungry, that's a problem too. So your, your, your hunger and your satiety hormones are going to play a big role in whether you're hungry or not. And so if you're too hungry, that's a problem. If you're not ever hungry, that's also a problem. I had a client who was an emergency department doc who, you know, their schedules are all over the place. I mean, it's horrible. It really is. It's so hard on the body. And, it, and there's, it, it's a, man, the, 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 as hard as it is for them to sleep and to focus, I mean, you've got to be on your toes in the emergency department and you just don't get a lot of sleep. And then you're on, your, your schedules are so crazy wonky. I don't know how they do it. I would not be able to function. And, but I think a lot of it's the, you know, the adrenaline rush, the, 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 the stress of it all that helps keep them, go, keep them going and it's the energy. But it, it is so hard on a body. Point to all of that is. I mean, I think, I, I think about this with, with uh, lots of people who, do, who, who tend to work at night and sleep during the day. You know, this throws our, our natural circadian rhythms totally out of whack and can create lots of problems. But when she came to me, she was either not hungry or she was nauseous. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's interesting. And so she didn't know when to eat. And it's because her hunger hormones were way out of whack. And so sometimes we have to get those started again. We have to understand what's going on. I would never put her on an intermittent fasting diet. I actually had to make her eat so we could start that up again. So, um, you know, if you're suffering or struggling with, you know, hypothyroid, if you're struggling, struggling with Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune condition of the thyroid, but it's not a thyroid condition. It's, a, it's an immune system condition, right? So remember that. That's really, really important because when you're diagnosed with Hashimoto's, it's important to address the immune system 
and less important to address, address the thyroid. You want to support the thyroid, but you've got to address the immune system. And a bunch of drugs is not going to help you address your immune system. So with that being said, um, I do, I like intermittent fasting. I'll do it periodically for myself, um, but not all the time. I listen to my body. I'm no longer hardcore about when I eat or how I eat, except I don't like to eat late. The body likes to rest late. So I try not to eat past seven or so, right? Um, but it kind of depends on when you go to bed. Some people do really well with the sun, and I think that's important too. That's a more natural way of, of, of um, going throughout your day is up with the sunrise and going to sleep with the sunset. I'm in Colorado, and at this time of year, moving on in December, I mean, it's dark at four, so not happening. So we have to live our lives, right? But, you know, again, all things to consider. So keto diet. Keto diet, I find, is, well, I, I fully believe is exceptionally therapeutic. It is rarely a lifestyle. If someone is struggling with epilepsy, had uh, have a friend whose dog was just diagnosed with ep epilepsy, a keto lifestyle may be what you need. Um, but to me, that's still therapeutic. Um, keto does really well for a lot of types, if not most types of cancer. So if you have been diagnosed or you're dealing with cancer, a keto diet has the ability to really help to control uh, the spread and all of the things that go along with it. Again, lots and lots of factors here, but keto is a super amazing therapeutic type of diet. I believe, I fully believe though that things can be missing if you're eating upwards of you know 70 to 90 percent fat. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind and keep it therapeutic. Um, I would go to conferences where, you know, they would, there was a specific conference I would go to and this, there's this, this specific nutritionist who's amazingly smart and he was always studying different things in his practice, but he was really pushing keto for everyone. And I think that that's a really bad idea. And he finally, he started doing some studies and showed that even though the, the, some of these people were doing keto, this wasn't everyone, their glucose uh, levels were still going up, right? So. To say that something is for everyone, it's, it's just not okay. What we want to keep in, in consideration too with keto is it does not, it doesn't take into account that genetically or epigenetically, some of us don't have the ability to break down fat like others do. That's me. Um, and I've done keto. I've done keto. I went through the whole keto fever and the thing. It, did I love it? It was fine. It can be difficult, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't what I needed, um, and I know this about myself because I know my genetics. Here's what's interesting. I think is we hear in the world of nutrition and can you know conventional medicine and you know from the commercials and whatever, the saturated fat is bad. This is this is such a horrible way of looking at fat. Fat is necessary. Saturated fat is not bad. When saturated fat is bad, it's because we're eating an animal, a pig, a cow, a chicken, you name it, that has been raised conventionally, meaning it's not raised on its normal, happy, normal healthy diet. So a cow eats grass, always. Cows are never intended to eat wheat, grains, 
corn, soy, any of this trash that we put in their grain when they're when they're in their feed when they're taken off of grass off the pasture and put into feedlots. So what these things do that are not normal and natural, going back to eating every day on McDonald's, that's what's happening. They are eating McDonald's, eating this food that's not normal and natural to them, so it puts on weight, it creates inflammation, they become obese within a very short period of time. You know, sometimes it's two weeks, give or take. And so what then happens is we're eating an animal that is inflamed, which means we're taking in excessive amounts of omega-6, which is the precursor to, to, to inflammatory eicosanoids, essentially they create inflammation, and we're, we get too much of that already. So there's a nice, normal, healthy balance to omega-3s and omega-6s, but if we're eating an inflamed animal, we're eating an excessive amount of, of omega-6, what does that do? It creates inflammation in us because we're getting an excessive amount of omega-6 and not enough of the omega-3s. So it also, uh, they, you know, it, so let's not get sidetracked. I tend to get sidetracked, obviously. But what it also is doing to the saturated fat in this animal, where saturated fat is not unhealthy unless you're dealing with an animal that is inflamed that saturated fat is gonna be unhealthy because it's gonna be high in omega-6. So if we're eating animals that are 100% pasture-raised, 100% grass-fed chickens, chickens aren't vegetarians. Remember that, please. I, I see it on eggs, I see it you know everywhere. Vegetarian beds is supposed to be a good thing. Chickens eat worms, they are not vegetarians. They need to be outside, they need to peck, they need to eat bugs, they need to eat worms. That's how they get their natural balance of omega-3s and omega-6s, which is how we get our natural balance of omega-3s and omega-6s. Same with the saturated fat. Now, chickens don't have much saturated fat, especially the white meat, but pork does. Um, pork's super fatty, right? It's super delicious. But we want to make sure that it's a good, healthy, saturated fat. All of that being said, for, you know, for me specifically and for a lot of people out there, I don't do well with saturated fat. My body doesn't like a lot of saturated fat. And I had a point, uh, I think at taking this test, I was eating probably around 20 grams of saturated fat a day. And as of the last, I don't know, month or so, I've taken my saturated fat down to like two to six grams a day. And it's amazing how quickly I could feel my body changing. It's fascinating. And so that's why I love doing all of these things because I want to feel it, I want to see it, so then I can teach it, right? It's, it's really, really phenomenal. But I also know for me particularly, and for a lot of people out there, there, there are a number of different variants that we look, can look at that help us to understand what our macronutrients should look like. So macros are our fats and our proteins and our carbohydrates. Um, there's a specific variant that is also uh, a really good variant to look at if you're, if you're interested in understanding your potential. Remember, this is only potential, it's not diagnostic, but your potential for Alzheimer's disease. But it also can give us an indication as to where we eat more protein, we should eat more protein or less protein or more fat or less fat. And so my particular genotype shows, interestingly, um, and we don't have it in the family. Uh, it, well, at least it's not presented in the family, thankfully. 
but uh, that I have a very, very high chance of Alzheimer's disease. What's beautiful about this is because I know what the variant is and I know how to mitigate and I know what I'm doing and I know that it's an inflammatory response and I know that it can have a lot to do with, with mercury toxicity and all of these other things, then I know how to mitigate it. And I know how to live a life that will, will significantly decrease the chances of Alzheimer's disease. I'm very comfortable and confident with that. It scares people to know some of this information, but information is power. The knowledge is power. It's, it's amazing. So, but you wanna find people, right? Find your team who can help you through this process if that's what you need. Um, this is what I like. I'm, I'm a nerd about this stuff. So, um, you know, I'm, feel, I, I'm comfortable and confident with it, and not everybody is. So if you're doing genetic testing, take the time to find somebody, or you're probably doing it through somebody who already knows how to do it, to help you understand it, because there's, there's a lot to it. There's a ton to it. Um, then, and so if, if I were to compare myself to my husband, he is hardcore meat and fat. And it is in the way that he responds to food, the way that his body responds to food, the way that one time I made him go a week on a vegan diet and he was flipping the freak out. Hilarious, I won't ever do that again. But um, he's not a guy who can do vegan or vegetarian. I've done vegan, I've done vegetarian, and I'm not saying that these are good things. I don't believe that they are. I think they're therapeutic, potentially. Um, but I can do well on them, right? I don't, don't, um, I don't feel bad, but I do think that I'm missing nutrients if I do vegan and vegetarian. We'll, we'll dig in, into that here in just a little bit. Um, so for those who are trying to consider you know, how do I, you know, do I do keto? Do I not do keto? Do I do paleo, which is more of a lifestyle than anything else? You know, it's, it's good to have an understanding. And I think a lot of times you can, you can just think about how you respond to food, how you feel about food, kind of go in and get a feel for that. Sometimes your body's just gonna tell you which is super cool too. If a client comes to me and I can hear certain things that they're saying, that I can kind of pick up what I believe are their genetics or epigenetic variants are gonna be to an extent, right? It's certainly not, um, you know, science-backed, you know, my thoughts. But, <laughs> but we can look at the science-backed data on each person, which is super cool stuff. So, Briefly, there's carb cycling. I tried this for a long time. Um, didn't really make of it much of a difference for me, but has the ability to work really well for some people. They use it, use carb cycling a lot in um, fitness and in like, uh, you know, the shows. And what are they called? Anyway, when you, you do your, your, the fitness shows, right? The super muscle things that I will never be and don't care to be, but I want to be in shape. So carb cycling is essentially you go days with higher carb and you go days with higher fat. And usually your days are higher fat, uh, uh, more days of higher fat and less days of, low, of lower fat. Does that make sense? Um, and then you might have a day, which this is never okay, but some will do this. You have a day where you eat anything and everything you want. So it's the banana, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the pastries and the ice cream and all the junk food. This is not okay. We never want to, you know, take the attitude that anything is going to be beneficial because it's not. 
it may change you know some of the way we react and some of the metabolic pathways a bit but it doesn't mean that our body's going to be saying oh yeah please give me another pastry not going to happen but do it in a healthy way if you want to try carb cycling i think it's fine here's what i think though especially with me because when i was doing carb cycling and i don't mean to keep making this about me but i i'm my best example right especially when there is such a movement to higher fat um, which is great but what I did not take into consideration and should have what I didn't take into consideration was the saturated fat so I tend to I, I love to cook but I'm also always in a hurry um, and so if I need something in a pinch I have grass-fed hot dogs right it's all beef it's all grass-fed it's 100% it's just ground up beef in a hot dog shape anyway Super high in saturated fat. Butter's high in saturated fat. Coconut oil, coconut milk, all high, high in saturated fat. And I would eat a lot of that stuff. Um, not that it's unhealthy, but for my body, my body doesn't respond well to it. And so, and I would feel it. Now that I've, I've, I've significantly lowered my saturated fat, my coconut milk, I would always put coconut milk in my coffee, which I love. Um, but I would always feel really full and really uncomfortable and that doesn't happen anymore. So fascinating, so fun. But I think carb cycling is a fun thing to try. It also can help you if you're a person who you have your sweets that you like. Doesn't mean you want good sweets. I mean, doesn't mean we want candy, but if you like fruit, you know, so there are days where you can have fruit and then there are days where you can have butter or coconut milk or, you know, higher fat, uh, meat if you want depending on how you respond to these things so it helps to manage cravings it helps to manage um you know uh, well mostly cravings i think it could also help to to help with some society and your hunger hormones it also can help with um metabolic uh what's my term metabolic uh flexibility you know so the body and its ability to manage higher carbs versus higher fats on different days. I think it's a great thing to do, and I think creating metabolic flexibility is really, really important. Um, but again, it goes back to you gotta know your body, and you gotta know so much of these this information. If, you, you know, if you're like me and you don't do well with saturated fat, this may not work for you very well, right? Okay, moving on. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about macros and, you know, really, you know, it, it's not a lot different than carb cycling, except macros is not necessarily cycling. It's just, you know, how much protein do you need? How much fat do you need? How much carbohydrate do you need? It's a great question. I don't know, you know, so everybody's different. And the best way to understand that is we can do a genetic report and we can look and see how your body is best going to to react to different amounts or the proper amounts according to your, your uh, epigenetic makeup, the proper amount of macros for you. And you, some of these reports, this one that I have here, um, and then you know there are a couple other ones, they'll break it down for you, which makes my life a lot <laughs> easier, but they'll break it down for you. And so that's basically what I have done in the last month or however long it's been is I took this report and I, I, you know, created my own little daily ha habits, my, you know, the food that I need, and I would do some tracking, 
And I don't always tell people that they need to track. I think if we're trying to understand our body, I think tracking is great. It can be a pain in the ass, and I get that. Um, but in order to get to a point to where you know where you know your body really well, I think tracking is a great idea. Um, I don't do it all the time, but I only I do it when I'm trying something new and trying to understand and trying to learn. And so, what I don't do in most cases, not all cases, is calorie counting. I think that that can that especially because we've been doing it for so long, it can play such a it can be so detrimental on the psyche that really it's more about let's get in the proper amount of protein, uh, fat, and carbohydrates, then that can be more beneficial than just tracking calories. Because a calorie is not a calorie. That was another thing in, is the calories in and calories out. Super problematic. Because you can't compare a pastry to a grass-fed beef burger, right? Calories may be the same, but one's actually gonna be utilized by the body, the other one body's gonna like, oh, well let's just create a bunch of fat, okay? So um, calories can have a place, an understanding of calorie count can have a place, um, but it's not the end-all be-all. And so, and macros is not the end-all be-all. There's a lot, there are a lot of people out there who are only trained in macros, and that's fine, but we gotta go deeper. We gotta understand um, what, what the individual body needs, at least to the best of our ability. If we don't do testing, we still have to understand that the body's unique. Um, and I think too that macros is very broad, right? It kind of, this is what everybody needs and that's never ever the case. Um, and you know, I don't know, it goes back to constantly having to count and I just think that we want to get to a place where we understand our body as best as possible so we can just live our life, right? We make the decisions on what we wanna eat, we know what it's gonna do and how it's gonna do it if I decide to eat a pastry or if I decide not to. Right? We want to know how our body's going to react and what's going to happen. Um, paleo, I think paleo, what I like about paleo is sort of this term now that, you know, it's paleo if it's meat and cheese, which is a horrible way of looking at paleo. Paleo is historical. Paleo is what is from the earth. Paleo is, you know, not all meat is paleo. If it's grass-fed and pasture-raised 100%, it's gonna be paleo. Um, if it's a conventionally raised animal, this is not paleo. And so you'll see paleo everywhere, and I got paleo and paleo, and it's just, it's, it's not the case. But paleo does not include grains. Paleo does not include dairy. Now there, are, there is, um, I think, primal type of diet that includes dairy. You know, dairy's biblical. Talk about milk and honey. Um, and so I, you know, I think dairy for some people genetically has its place. It can be a food. Lots of people genetically, epigenetically, they lose the ability to break down and utilize dairy. Conventional dairy is always terrible. Even if it's grass fed, if it's conventional, this, so if it's grass fed, it can, and, and sorry, two different things. What I mean is if it is organic and grass fed, but it's still pasteurized, it's still not a food. It's a non-food because the body doesn't know what to do with it. So it needs to be grass-fed, pasture-raised, all of the things, but not pasteurized. So we're looking at raw dairy straight from the cow, or if it's a raw cheese, that you know it takes a little time, but it's not pasteurized. So it still has the enzymes to help the body break it down. It still has probiotics. It's still got a good healthy protein that has not been, um, uh, uh, 
the structure of it's not been changed, right? So the heating process changes the structure of protein. Totally off topic, but this is why we don't want to feed cooked meat to dogs. Changes the structure of the protein that also, that the fat that's on that meat, dogs can't digest. So it's really hard on their pancreas. Pancreatitis, we see it all the time in dogs. Um, so we gotta be really careful with that. Back to humans. Um, the fun things about diet, right? Okay, so um, again, going back to paleo, fruits, vegetables, meat, fat, um, these are all good, healthy, from the earth, God-given, nuts and seeds, right? Raw nuts and seeds. It's super clean. Um, but if you have an autoimmune condition, nuts and seeds are probably not going to be on your dietary plan, right? So autoimmune, that's another... Um, a therapeutic diet is autoimmune protocol or autoimmune paleo. There are a lot of things that are normal and natural to our earth that can trigger uh, uh, autoimmune. Jeez, uh, 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 sometimes my brain, I swear, this is the thing that I've been working on is my brain. Flares, autoimmune flares. So uh, we want to make sure that we, if we're dealing with an autoimmune condition, that we know what our body needs so we're not creating flares, right? The food that we eat, the stress that we, we take on, all of these things have the potential of increasing or decreasing um, autoimmune flares. We want to get you where you don't flare, or at least as, as little as possible. So all of these things play a big role in that. I want to talk about carnivore. This again is going to go back to your genetic makeup. I tried carnivore. Um, that's kind of a lie. I did not fully try carnivore. I tried more meat-based. Carnivore is kind of like keto, but keto is high fat, carnivore is high meat. And meat-based is gonna be a lot of meat, but you add in fruit and you add in a couple of vegetables, cucumber, zucchini, pumpkin, but, but it, but it it, what this, the, the science behind it, which I'm not totally on board with at this point, but is that lots of fruits and, oh, I'm sorry, lots of vegetables that we eat are actually toxic because they have anti-nutrients. We do know that to be the case with a lot of things, right? Grains have anti-nutrients, legumes have anti-nutrients, nuts and seeds have anti-nutrients in them. Um, and if we, if we process them properly, when I say that, a lot of times it's the soaking them, which is traditional methods for for eating these types of foods, we decrease these anti-nutrients. But nightshades, tomatoes, eggplants, uh, bell peppers, potatoes, these have anti-nutrients as well, which is why they're typically off an autoimmune protocol because they could trigger flares for people who are suffering with autoimmune conditions. Do I believe that these anti-nutrients are problematic for everyone? I don't. Um, doesn't mean that I'm absolutely right, but I believe that we're all different. Go figure, uh, and I don't think that it's that it's that these things are problematic for everyone. I do believe they're problematic for some. I also think I don't know this. Um, this was brought up in a genetic conference that I was at, so it's not in the science, it's not in the literature, but it's sort of a, a, a clinical pearl. It's a it's a what if. So we have certain epigenetic variants that don't allow for proper detoxification of pesticides and herbicides. So these anti-nutrients that are in foods, specifically um, nightshades that have uh, these, these anti-nutrients, they are natural pesticides. 
And so if we have these, these variants that don't allow for detoxification of pesticides and herbicides, could it be that those with those same variants don't have the ability to tolerate nightshades and other types of anti-nutrients because it's just the plant protecting itself. It's normal and natural. Another thought, and here's, here's where I start to think deeper into carnivore, into meat-based, is biblically, biblically, and this is, you know, my own, this is where I come from, but I want to think, th think through these things because I think it's important. But the first thing that was given to us was the fruits and the vegetables of the earth, right, that produce seeds. And so to think that we're not supposed to eat them, to think that doing a carnivore diet is a, is a lifestyle type of diet, I don't find that, I, it doesn't make sense to me. There's also not a lot of data on it, and there's not certainly not a lot, a lot of long-term data on it. I do know, though, that people who do carnivore and meat-based, they have done really, really well. But why is that? If we're doing carnivore or meat-based, we're taking out all the shit that we've been eating prior to, right? So we're taking out the bread and the buns and the, the candies and the pastries and whatever these things, even, even foods that maybe our body doesn't like that may seem to be healthy, maybe that's nightshades, right? We're taking out all of these foods that are inflammatory and we're bringing in foods that are of the earth for the most part. Hopefully they're not conventional, but either way, the point is, if you're doing really well on this, think about what, what the change is and be very careful because if you stick with these things long term, the likelihood of, of, of being deficient in, in you know, important micronutrients is pretty high. So that's where I come from as far as these are concerned. Man, I could talk for hours on this stuff. We're already, you know, got 10 minutes left. But um, anyway, point to that is I want you to really take, to, take into consideration that carnivore and meat-based, they, I think they have a place if you are struggling, if you have an inflammatory condition, um, if you know whatever the case may be, is it the thing to do for a period of time? Is it the thing potentially? Yeah. Is it the thing to do long term? Probably not. Right. You want to learn what else you can bring in, and I'm certainly more on board with meat based than I am with carnivore. Also, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so the thing to keep in mind too is that there's a, a metabolic process called gluconeogenesis. What that means is the liver creates new sugar, new glucose. When we eat, and I think this depends on the person also, if you're a high protein person, it's probably gonna take a lot more to do this. If you're me, it's probably gonna take a lot less. But if you eat excessive amounts of meat, it actually will create sugar. The liver will convert it into sugar, so it will raise your glucose levels. This is not okay because, you know, when we're talking about, you know, things like cancer, when many cancers are so meta metabolically active and feed on, on sugars, we're eating excessive amounts of meat, creating more sugar, that can create a problem in, in, in uh, with, you know, if we have cancer or, you know, a lot of other metabolic issues, right? So think about that too. You want to know if your body can handle a high meat type of diet, a high protein type of diet. 
Um, I think it's a really important one to take into consideration. Of course, we have Mediterranean diet. I don't need to go too much into this. Um, you know, it's healthy fish, it's healthy fat, it's healthy olive oil. Don't cook with olive oil. Um, cook with avocado, cook with coconut if you can handle saturated fat. Um, but, you know, it's a good, clean, from the earth type of diet. It does include grains. Um, in my opinion, grains have a very small place in our diet. Um, I think some people handle it better than others. I'm a high carb person. I have increased my carb content, but my car carb content consists of fruit, okay? Um, even a little bit of rice. I usually don't do rice, but there are, there's some information out there, mostly in traditional Chinese medicine, showing that rice can play a role, a good, nice role in the diet, right? Of course, it's Chinese, and they eat a lot of rice. And so, is that me? I don't know, but I have noticed that I, I do okay with it. I don't eat a lot of it. Um, so, again, you know, you've got to gotta learn, got to understand. But um, I, I, I don't think that gluten has a role, especially here in the States and here, you know, where we, you know, screw with our food so much that, you know, gluten is inflammatory no matter what. If you have an autoimmune condition, never, ever, 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 period, no matter what, eat gluten. It's just the way that it is, right? It's very black and white. I'm not black and white on most things. Autoimmune disease and gluten and dairy, very black and white. They don't belong in your diet, period, because um, they'll, they'll be inflammatory. Whole30. I've never had any of my clients do Whole30. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. It's whole foods. Whole foods are great. That's what we want. It's super important, right? But the biggest complaint that I get is after Whole30, what do you do? Great question. And, you know, do you continue? Maybe. It's pretty strict, which, you know, that's fine. But it also, you know, is it, does it help to, are you identifying sensitivities? Maybe. But you have to go into it knowing that, you know, and, and I think that's part of the, the draw to it is, okay, it's 30 days, I can do 30 days. I totally get that. But, but I, probably every person who I've ever talked to who has done Whole30, once they finish it, they go right back to they, where they were, and they're miserable again, or they're mad again, or they put on more weight, or they just don't understand, they don't understand what happens, right? So you have to have a plan in place if you do Whole30 on what's coming next. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take, a, take into account genetics, um, which is not, always, again, it's not always easy to do, but can play a really huge role. Uh, we hear a lot about low FODMAP. Low FODMAP certainly is a therapeutic type of diet. Low FODMAP, FODMAP are types of starches and sugars that are really important to our microbiome. If we have a type of infection where we have there are healthy microbes that have migrated to a part of the, the, the gut that they don't belong. What happens is they start to eat these sugars and these starches, and they, they're doing their job, but they're doing their job in the wrong place. So it creates bloating and gas and pain and heartburn and, you know, like that, that, that uh, you know, uh, food belly that you'll see sometimes where it just looks like you're pregnant and you're not. It happens to men and to women. So um, there was a time, and there, well, there still is, that people will, will say, well, do low FODMAP, that's your, that's your long-term diet. Not the case. We're missing a lot of good things if we're doing low FODMAP. But it is diagnostic, or it can be somewhat diagnostic, and that's how I use it in practice. 
is if we're lowering symptoms, if we're allowing for people to get through their day a lot better because they're not struggling with the symptoms, for one, it tells me that the infection is probably there, and for two, it allows them to get through their day. So we do it for, for a period of time, and then we bring those foods back in as quickly as possible, okay, as we're going through antimicrobial protocols. Um, let's see. One of the things that I want to hit on, uh, there are there are a few other, oh, vegan and vegetarian. So often when I when I uh, when people do vegan and vegetarian diets, what are they doing? They're doing diets that are high grain, high processed, um, you know, and and it's it's not doing them any good. I do think that they have a place as a therapeutic type of diet. I don't I, I don't believe that they are, have um, a place as a lifestyle. If anybody is going to be the lifestyle of a vegan, it's me. I mean, it's my genetics, right? It shows it all over the place. But I also know, here's a little tip for you ladies out there who are going through perimenopause or menopause, that what, what the data is starting to show that higher protein can be really beneficial for helping us move through that, that phase. So, um, so keeping that in mind, that's, that's what I've done is I've increased my protein content and increased my fruit content. I used to never eat fruit hardly ever, a little bit. Um, and then uh, decrease my saturated fat, have sort of normal normal fat, but not high amounts of fat. Fat is important. If I haven't already said that, we have to have fat, always. We have to have fat. It's important for cellular integrity, for brain function, for hormone production. If you are taking a statin, you're not producing the hormones you're supposed to produce. It blocks the production of cholesterol. Yes, that's the point but statins will screw with cellular integrity, with brain function, with muscle contraction. Um, it'll also screw with hormone production. So I asked a guy the other day, I said, how's your sex life? He's like, I have none, but he's been on a statin forever. So, um, you know, we, that's a whole other topic. If you wanna know more about that, I have a cardiovascular, uh, I think, uh, and everything about cholesterol podcast that I did or show that I did, so you can search for that one. But um, it's important to be aware because fat and cholesterol, I mean, they're, they're different, but you get cholesterol from fat, but cholesterol is mostly produced in the liver. Um, and so we have to have fat. We have to have fat for, uh, for hormone production. We have to have cholesterol for hormone production, healthy cholesterol. Um, so there's an interesting thing about this show. I was deciding, when I decided to do it, it was, you know, a week ago or whatever it was, but I did a podcast with a couple of guys yesterday, and I wanted to make sure that I brought this um, up because they're doing some really cool things, and it made it, they really inspired me to dig deeper into the, into nutrigenomics for my clients because I do it, but I don't do it a lot. And I want to, because of them, I want to do it more because we can gain so much information on how to live forward. Um, and I think that that's important. So um, there are these guys here in, in Denver. Uh, they're Ascend Performance and Training. Uh, they're physical therapists. Trip Parks and Brett Hutari. Uh, if you happen to be local, check them out. They're, the, the way that they're practicing is pretty cool stuff. Uh, but they're always, they're using genetics on everyone. They're doing a genetic report. They're doing their labs. Uh, which is similar to what I do. Um, if I'm doing genetic reports, I'm always, I mean, I always do labs. But 
it's taking it and putting it together and putting putting very very specific protocols together. And so I did their podcast yesterday, and that was what we did. So their their uh, podcast is uh, Health or High Water. So check them out. Um, ours is out. We did it. No, it was two days ago, and it was out yesterday. So if you want to check that out, it's good stuff. But with the whole time, we're nerding out nerding out on genetics and you know individuality and you know all of these cool things about you know the what the the tools that we have at our disposal to truly optimize our health to bring ourselves out of the situations the conditions the struggles that we're that we're dealing with right it's really fascinating um and so they have truly inspired me to continue to move forward with my own knowledge of epigenetics and how it can impact us and how it plays a role in our health and how it plays a role in the health of generations but also to use it more with clients as I'm building out protocols um, because you know the things that we can look at and this is just my own report you know we can look at aging skin I mean how cool is that so your antioxidant activity for your skin um, eating habits nutrient metabolism Let's see what else we have, um, you know, certain micronutrients. If we don't want to not get too, 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 too deep into the science here, but everything that we do is based on enzymatic function. Enzymes are what move nutrients, whether it's um, amino acids, if it's uh, vitamins, if it's minerals, cofactors, right? They, they move, move metabolic pathways to continue. What can happen with these variants is they're, they're all based on enzymes. If the enzyme is not functioning properly, then things get stuck, essentially, right? So homocysteine is one, and I, this is probably a little too much, but homocysteine is an inflammatory marker. When we see it elevated, usually it's because of specific nutrients that are not moving down the pathway to bring down Homocysteine. So when the when the enzyme isn't functioning, the nutrients get stuck. Homocysteine elevates, and so we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we want things to keep moving down these these metabolic pathways so everything's functioning properly. So often it's because of nutrient deficiencies that things aren't functioning properly. If enzymes aren't functioning, we're not utilizing our nutrients properly. Things that creates problems. So we can look at these reports, and we can see. Yes, we have the ability to utilize uh, vitamin A. A lot of women don't, interestingly. And so we need to understand that about ourselves. We need to understand that about our genetic makeup. Um, it'll tell us whether we have an elevated uh, uh, ability to utilize or if it's decreased. Uh, vitamin D, I see vitamin D low in 70 Five, 85% of my clients, right? It's, it's low across the board, even if you spend, uh, spend a bunch of time in the sun. It's genetics, right? Vitamin D plays a role in, it, well, it's a hormone. Now it's considered a hormone, it's not a vitamin. And so, you know, it plays a role in our health, in, in, in uh, our immune system, in, in, you know, decreasing our chances for cancers and all kinds of stuff. So, um, Anyway, we're at our time, and I could sit and go over this stuff over and over and over and over and over again, and it's just it's fascinating stuff. But I, I you know, the, the, the key is knowing that you are you and you're different than everybody else. You can't compare yourself. 
whether no matter what it is, you can't compare yourself to other people. And we want to know as much about our body as possible so we know how to live, how to feed it, how to give it what it needs so we feel good. Good stuff, man. So fun. And so super grateful for my conversation with Tripp and Brett yesterday. Um, I will post that podcast uh, as soon as I'm able to today. And then, um, you know, of course, if you have any questions about any of this stuff, I'm always around. I uh, always love talking. Obviously, <laughs> I love talking about this stuff all the time, and um, I love I love showing people. I love seeing the light bulb go off with with clients, with people, with any you know. If I'm doing a, if I'm talking, uh, you know, with groups of people, is that understanding the light bulb about now I get it. It's 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 really a beautiful thing to understand what it is to thrive and what your body needs, what you need to give it to thrive. Um, you know, so much of us are just sort of getting through the day and surviving. It's not fair. It's not how it's meant to be. So uh, find what it is that makes your body tick. That's really what it's all about. So um, reach out to me if you have questions. Uh, of course, we are in full swing with Soulful Conception, which is preconception planning. Um, so much of, of what I love about epigenetics is rolled into preconception planning because if we are healthy today, we have the ability to create our own, our own health. We have the ability to to create better health for conception, or you know, better chances of conception, right? A better, healthy, normal, great pregnancy, hopefully with you know not a lot of symptoms, delivery, good, easy delivery, um, and then of course a healthy child. Our health today will impact the health of that child, mentally, emotionally, physically. And then we'll pass it on for generations. Literally seven generations is what the data shows. So um, it all comes to what we do today, the decisions that we make. Because we have, again, going back to epigenetics, the beautiful amount of control that we have over our own lives and over our own you know, lineage. Uh, it's up to me, right? It's up to you. It's not up to anybody else. Um, and don't let anybody else tell you that it is, including the government. Couldn't help but to throw that in. Anyway, all right, that's it. Uh, reach out, go to tastelifenutrition.com, Taste Life Nutrition on all the social media, fill out an assessment on my website. It's there for you, and I'll reach out to you. We'll chat about it, um, and we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful weekend, and uh, we'll see you next week. 10 a.m. Mountain on KUHSDenver.com. Bye.